You're listening to the Community Church in Orange podcast. We hope you enjoy today's episode. You guys give these worship team an incredible hand. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Well, as you know, Pastor Lloyd and Pastor Leslie are out of town, but they're coming back today. We'll put them to work tonight. Everybody show up tonight at 7 o'clock for a service. We're going to book him before he... No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> They're out of town enjoying themselves with their family, getting some rest. And uh, we're just so honored to have some great pastors. Amen? Amen. Amen. They've uh, taken on the challenges that have been before us. And as a church, man, I feel like the Lord has graciously given us some incredible pastors. And so we're so thankful for them. Everybody good? Okay. Okay, it's exciting. Um, I've got a message to share with you this morning, and uh, so I'm going to jump into it here pretty quick. I'm really loud up here. Is it, can we turn it down just a hair? We good? Okay, y'all with me? Man, worship was good. I just wanted to keep going. Don't ever want to stop. Uh, but I feel like the Lord gave me a word for you guys, and uh, I, I, I pray in my heart that it uh, ministers to you, but I feel like it's one of those uh, significant shifts that we as a church need to make. And I can say that because the Lord's doing it in my life and, and I see it happening across the nation. But I, I feel like the word this morning, the Lord wants to not just to preach at us and tell us a good word, but something we can take and apply in our life as it should be every Sunday. Amen? So let's dive into this. Uh, well, let's start with last Wednesday. This past Wednesday, I taught a little message called about enduring till the end. And uh, the context was Jesus' statement, which he said three times, twice in Matthew, one in Mark, about how to endure to the end of the age and uh, not getting into eschatology and all that stuff, but just the principles that we need to adopt in our life of generosity, contentment, and uh, laying down our life, those simple principles that will aid us in the generation and in the age that we are in right now. Whatever your end time theology is, the principles of how to follow Jesus don't change. It always stays the same, right? So in light of that, I felt like the Lord just kind of gave me another step in, in the process of enduring to the end. This is a, a key fundamental, if you will, principle in the faith that no matter where you are in the timeline of Christendom, at the very first century church to, to this day, this concept or this principle that we're going to talk about is relevant and applicable in our lives from week to week, okay? And so um, I would guess most of you... and have experienced in the last 14 months have been impacted, experienced just the hostility in our culture, right? And I'm not going to pounce on that too much, but it seems like there's a lot of offense, a lot of strife, a lot of uh, contention in our culture, right? And it's kind of seeped into, the poison has kind of seeped into our churches as well, where it's okay sometimes, or people feel they have the right to vent there and vent and express and offend and divide and conquer, right? And we felt the effects of that as a church as a whole, right? And I'm not saying nobody in here is guilty, right? Everybody's innocent. Don't worry. I'm not talking about you. But a lot of times we begin to think the way the world thinks when it comes to tension and strife and struggle. But Jesus clearly taught us that his methodology of dealing with conflict and tensions and strife is totally different than the world's way of dealing with it. Probably one of the most misquoted scriptures is when Jesus speaks and he says, the kingdom of God is without violence. 
because the violent take things by force. And I've heard some great messages about how we're to take things by force. But that's not what that scripture says. In the old King James Version, it says, and the kingdom of God suffers violence or lacks or is without violence because violent people take things by force. And the implication is that's not how the kingdom works. We don't take things by force and power and control. We take things by changing the hearts of people. When you can make your enemy a friend because their life has been transformed by the gospel, that's how the kingdom is established. We're not trying to kill the lost. We're trying to save the lost, right? And this concept that, that, that Jesus brought to earth, because you remember when the disciples, they, Jesus is here, they're like, okay, he's the king. Let's make him king. Let's crown him. Let's put a robe on him. Let's drag him through the, the street and everybody be like, oh, Jesus is the king. And then the next plan, wipe out the Romans, get rid of the Greeks, get rid of all these oppressing armies. And Jesus, when are you going to do this? And Jesus' response is, you don't know what you're talking about. You remember that story when Jesus and the disciples go to the Samaritan village and they reject him? And the John and James, they come out and they're like, Lord, let's just kill them all. <laughs> right? Let's call down fire from heaven and destroy them all. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to kill. He came to seek out and to save the lost. And we know that intellectually in our, in our theology, but in our heart, sometimes we don't lend our heart to the sacrifice that is required to live a life of honoring people when they act dishonorably towards you. And that, this morning, I feel is the word the Lord's given us. How to live in honor when people are acting dishonorably towards you. I'm going to tell you at the very beginning, it's not easy. But it is the only way the kingdom of heaven will be established in the world when we walk with honor. Now more than ever, we must guard our mind against the constant assault of strife and offense. It's almost chic to be offended these days. It's the cool thing to do, you know, I'm offended. Listen, in the kingdom of heaven, offense is a poison that spreads very quickly. And it destroys lives. It destroys families. It destroys long relationships. Brings them to an end. I believe the Lord's speaking to us and that we as a church must address this area of guarding healthy relationships if we intend to make a place for God's favor to dwell. And let me tell you what that means. How I treat people in this room will determine if Holy Spirit shows up here or not. I know what you think many times. If the worship's just right, if I hold my left leg up just a little bit, if, uh, if the AC's at the right temperature, if the seats are padded well, then God's going to come. That is not the truth. When relationships are built on the foundation of I can trust and I can be vulnerable and I have close connection with the people of God in this room, that's when the Holy Spirit can come. He can come when offenses have been intentionally removed, forgiveness has been intentionally engaged between us. That's when he comes. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that they, the disciples in the early church, were one, together of one mind and one accord. And then the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. 
I know ideologically we all kind of believe close to the same thing. But relationally, if there's offenses in your life with people in this room and in our community, you are the barricade that's keeping Holy Spirit from coming in. Think, are you sure about that? Yeah. Because when offense is there, strife is there, confusion is there, the enemy has access to offend and push, push out the presence of the Lord. And it's our, um, our responsibility to keep those things out. So we create a resting place. Jesus said it like this, they will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, a lot of times we read that passage and think, well, God means love the people I like. No. If you love one another, that means loving the people that you have to work to love. And it's a very intentional choice. But here's what happens when we are very intentional about loving people who we don't agree with. It takes the grace of God to come out of you to love. It's not just to muster this up in your mind and make it happen. When you choose to put down your flesh and your pride and your ego and say, I'm going to love them in spite of how I feel, the feelings will come later and you open a door for God to work through you. Amen? Some of y'all look very serious at me. Listen, this is what me and Pastor Lloyd decided. He's the good cop. I'm the bad cop. <laughs> right? And so just take that for what it is. As much <laughs> as a church, we must address the area of guarding healthy relationships if we intend to make this place a dwelling place for the Lord. Inten the intentional practice of honoring others will aid you in avoiding the pitfalls of offense, unforgiveness, and frustration. Let me tell you, it's an intentional choice to honor other people. It's not just lip service. It's just not when the camera's out and somebody's filming every day. It's an intentional choice. Well, I don't feel like it. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It doesn't. You can feel offended all up in your head, but then you tell yourself you're going to act this way. You're going to honor Honoring people is a preventative measure against relationship damage. How many of you, I bet every one of us can raise our hand, know somebody that won't come to church, and the number one reason they won't come is because somebody offended them. Dishonor. Oh, they're all hypocrites. They're all offended me. And we could try to go into that argument, but here's the truth. They didn't feel honored, and so therefore there's a disconnect. Part of our response to that is, well, that's their problem, right? If they have an offense, that's their problem. And I get that logic. I get that principle. But there's a passage here in Romans chapter 12, verse 16 through 18 I want to share with you. And it says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Did y'all read that? Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Read on here. He says, do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, watch this, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Removing offenses in the church context rests on your shoulders. When people come in, we can't think, well, if they get offended, they get offended. That's their thing. As much as it's possible for you, live at peace with people. That takes the whole weight of 
responsibility in how I approach people instead of, y'all have all heard this little statement, well, I'm just going to tell people how I feel. If they don't like it, blah, blah, blah. No, you are crucified with Jesus, and it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. And the image you bear is not your reputation, it's his. So sometimes you have to tell yourself, put down your feelings of offense, put on your big boy pants, and honor people. I'm not going to live in a place of, well, I'm just going to tell them how I feel. They need to know what I think. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. You don't have a lot of pieces to give away? Hang on to what you got. <laughs> Put on your big pants and honor people, right? Walk in honor, all right? Ephesians chapter 4, I was talking through this passage with a friend of mine the other day, and we as an as a apostolic, prophetic kind of church, you know, we always love this idea of the apostles prophets, pastors, teachers, and we want to see all the gifts function. And sometimes I think because we want to see all the gifts function and the roles displayed in the church, we forget what the purpose of those gifts are for. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read it with you. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture this morning, so you think this is not my idea. It's, It's God's idea. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, and he, talking about Jesus, gave some apostles, some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Watch this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Till we all come what? To the unity of the faith. Keep going. And the full knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So all of the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers who are itinerating and moving through the church community, whether it's in the U.S. or around the world, their primary goal is to do what? Bring the church into unity. Not political unity, not sociological unity, not economic unity, but unity in the nature of Jesus. We all should look like him. We all should look like Jesus. And every apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist is supposed to help you become like Jesus by showing Jesus or showing you how to live this life of what Jesus is like in expression toward each other till we come to a unity of the faith. Keep on going here. Verse uh, 14, that we, talking about who, the church, should no longer be children tossed to and fro, that's old King James, for back and forth, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. Here's what's happening. When you don't have unity in the body, every wave of cultural disturbance moves people in and out of the church. Every wave of cultural disturbance, whether it's political, whether it's sociological, whether it's memes on Facebook or Twitter, they get offended and people are moved in and out of the church, tossed back and forth, And what's the result of that? The breakdown of unity means the enemy has chaos in people's lives. People feel isolated, and they don't have a way to navigate through their stuff. He says the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, they're here to bring a unity in the faith. And the, the goal is we come together to show the world who Jesus is. When you can love people you don't agree with, you're showing people that's what Jesus is like. Listen, Jesus loves you. He doesn't agree with everything you do. There's no question of his love for you many times, even though you know you live sometimes in ways that he doesn't agree with. And I'm not saying it's a license for sin to continue in your life, 
But I'm saying love covers a multitude of sins. Keep going with me here. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed back and forth, carried about with every wind of doctrine, the trickery of men, cunning craftiness, and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head. That's Christ. How do we grow up as a church? We pursue this thing called unity. Loving people in spite of our preferences. Keep going. The building of God's kingdom on earth is done by building healthy relationships. That's how the kingdom is built. Relationships are the heart issues, and this is where God's kingdom is. God's kingdom exists where? In the hearts of people. Sometimes we get this idea that God's kingdom is going to be this giant political machine that's going to just trample the world. And we're not right to think that, but it's not, it's not unexpected. Because in the first century, the Jews, when they heard Messiah was coming, they had the same expectations you and I had. I was reading last night, Will Durant has a great book, he's a historian, called Caesar and Christ, and he talks about how the church unfolded and grew in the first century. And over and over he would say, in, in, it's a huge book, but he would talk about as the church began to grow, they kept think, thinking it was the end of the world because Messiah had come and he was going to establish this political authority over the Middle East, and they were waiting for Messiah to come. And the church, when the, when the persecution came against the church and the Jews at the same time, the church and the Jews, they split. Because the church listened to what Jesus said as far as escaping Jerusalem and hiding in the hills of Masada. And the Jews stayed back because they were Zionists and they were trying to protect their homeland of Jerusalem. And the split was so drastic that the church lost sight of what its goal was. It was to save the Jews, not save themselves. And it's the same conflict that we have today. A lot of people in church culture feel like our job is to save our way of life. When Jesus clearly teaches us, lay down your way of life and follow me. In the first century, they were looking for political deliverance. And listen, I don't like to talk politics. In fact, my modus operandi when people start talking politics is to leave the room. Because it doesn't get you anywhere. Just gets a lot of people upset. And I would rather talk about Jesus than anything else. And let me tell you why that's important. I can feel the tension in the room. <laughs> let me tell you why this is important. A billion years from now, it won't matter what political party was in power. But it will matter if you express the love of Jesus and brought someone into the kingdom or left them in eternity of hell. That's what will matter. And we are called to live with our eyes on eternity. We're called to live with our eyes on eternity. If it wasn't for Little Caesar's pizza, you wouldn't know who the emperor was in first century. <laughs> but you do know about Jesus because his kingdom is not of this world. And when he comes to establish it, he begins in your heart and my heart. This kingdom is one that when he comes into your life, you give everything to him and you don't allow the offenses of our age to destroy the relationships that God wants you to engage to bring people into his kingdom. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were pretty, pretty eager to see if Jesus was Messiah or not so he could establish the kingdom. 
And so they came to him in Luke chapter 17, and they said this. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when is the kingdom of God coming? He answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Let's just stop right there. A lot of us, when we talk about revival, we're saying the same thing. When is this big revival going to happen? Y'all ever ask that? I'm the only one, right? When is this big revival going to happen, this move of God? And you know what Jesus is saying in this passage? It's not going to come if you're just sitting around looking for it. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. And then he goes on, he says here, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, hear or see here or see there. For indeed, watch what he says, the kingdom of God is within you. Within you is the kingdom of God. You know how you can see if the kingdom of God is advancing? It's not how many people are getting saved. It's not how many churches are being built, although those are great indicators of growth for a church organization. You know, if you want to see how the kingdom of God is advancing or if it's advancing, you look at the person that you probably don't like the most and you determine how much of your heart is changed toward them to love them like God loves them. And that indicates whether the kingdom is changing things or not. It's in your heart. It's within you. And if you're not changing in your way of approaching the lost, the kingdom is not growing and you're the obstacle. And I'm saying that with as much grace as I can say it because I've been on that side of I'm just going to hate people until they follow Jesus. Maybe they'll feel convicted because I hate them so much. They won't. You're never going to bring people to Jesus that you don't like. The kingdom of God is where? Within you. The love of God is what compels people to follow. Jesus didn't show up and beat everybody up to establish his kingdom. The kingdom of God is without violence because violent people take things by force. The kingdom of God is established on this concept of honoring people. Honor is a practice. Honor is the practice by which God's kingdom is manifest in your life. And I'm talking about honor because it's the first level of advancing God's kingdom. There's honor, and then there's relationship, and then there's love. But honor is where it begins. We're called to honor people. What does it mean to honor someone? The Webster's Dictionary says, honor, used as a noun, is a good name, public esteem, reputation, a showing of unusually merited respect or recognition. In your Bible, honor is defined as the giving of value to someone or someone's work, sacrifice, or legacy. Honor is a choice to treat someone with dignity and grace, regardless, regardless if they deserve it or not. And that's tough because there's this thing in our mind that if they don't deserve it, I don't have to honor them. Let me remind you, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And the way you behave has to be identified with the one who paid that price, Jesus, right? Why should you honor others? Every person, number one, every person is made in God's image. We know this. We've all heard this statement before. Every person is made in God's image. We are his offering, Paul would, off, offspring, Paul would tell us in the book of Acts. Everyone is made in the image of God, which means everyone has intrinsic value and worth. Everyone does. First level, why we should honor. Everyone is made in God's image. The second one, we honor because every person is a potential son or daughter of God. 
Scriptures say it like this. God causes the rain, which is a good thing, to fall on the just and the unjust. I know this week with all the rain, you think it's a bad thing, right? But God causes favor, his kindness, to fall on the just and the unjust. If God's response to people who don't believe in him is that good, our response should be better. Or just the same. We should honor people, especially those who don't know him. So first is, people are, everyone is made in God's image. The second thing is, we honor because everyone is a potential son or daughter of God. That doesn't mean everyone is, but they're potential, right? There's the statement going around, we're all God's children. That's not the truth. We all have the potential to be God's children, but you're not one of his children until you are born again. You're not in a family until you're born into it or adopted. And we, the Gentile church, is adopted. We're brought in because we believe on the Lord Jesus. The next thing, why do we honor? Honor, we honor because the spiritual and natural authority is established by the principle of honor. If there's no honor in our culture, in our church, authority loses its ability to change us and lead us. Even in the secular culture, if we don't respect the authority that's in the land, if we don't honor the authority that's in the land, chaos ensues. Police officers, sheriffs, so on and so, those men, women, have to be honored because that's how authority is established. And when authority is not there, chaos comes in and the enemy has a field day. Even in the church, if you don't honor the leadership of a church, and I'm not saying that because I'm a leader, I'm just telling you, having served in churches under pastors for years, when people dishonor leadership, it opens a door for the enemy to bring in chaos. Dishonor will limit your influence in the lives of those that you disdain. That's probably the key element of why we honor. Do you lose an ability to speak when you act dishonorably toward people? When people see you acting out of anger and rage and mad driving skills and you're ticked off at the cashier at Walmart, when you act that way, you're immediately telling them, I don't have what it takes to lead. I don't have what it takes to lead people. It limits your influence. Let me tell you just a little side note. Asking God to move in vain is, in, asking God to move is a vain prayer if you're dishonoring those around you with your words and behavior. How many of y'all have that lost loved one that you've been praying for a long time, but when you get around them, you can't stand them. Let me tell you, how you honor them determines how God will touch them. He's built the system this way. It takes a great intentional choice to love people who are opposite of your way of thinking, but this is what the kingdom is all about. Let me move on here. Um, why is it difficult to honor others? We kind of hit on this a little bit. Number one, we fear those who have hurt us will not be held accountable. If I don't treat, if I just act like nothing, if everything's okay, if I act like everything's okay, then they're just going to keep going. That's not your responsibility. That's not your responsibility. We have a fear that those who hurt us will not be held accountable. And so we feel like we have a license to dishonor. And that's not the truth. We honor people because they're made in God's image. They have a potential of becoming a son or a daughter of God. We honor them in spite of how they treat us. The next reason we feel it's difficult to honor, we may feel that people need to earn our honor. They need to earn my respect. Let me tell you something. God 
valued you long before you earned it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It didn't say while you were a sinner, Christ thought about if you'd come to him and weighed out the pros and cons of the sacrifice he would make. It says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He valued us so much that he was willing to lay down his life long before you made the slightest change to follow him. Let me tell you the, the, the power of that verse. Because a lot of times we read Christ died for us, we think, oh yeah, that's, that's great. The price that God pays tells you the value of what he's buying. If I go to a house, let's say all these, all you guys bought houses and cars. Let's play car game. If I go to a car and it's worth $500, immediately you're in your mind thinking, that's probably a piece of junk, right? $500 car, I'm not sure about that. It might be a great deal, but it's going to last me about six months. I can tell you right now, $500 for a car. But if I say, hey, look, this car costs $70,000, you automatically think this value tells me this is worth a lot. When God bought you, the price he paid was Jesus. That's how much he values you before you valued him. The price he paid was his son. If I give my son to get you, it tells you how much I value you. That's intense. And before you knew who he was, he paid that price. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I have no right to reserve honor for people. To reserve our honor when it comes to reaching the lost. What will it cost you? A lot. But he pays so much more. Why is it difficult to honor people? Honoring those who have hurt you isn't giving them a license to continue in their abuse, but it liberates you from the prison of vengeance. A lot of times we withhold honor because we're trying to teach people a lesson. That's not your job. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. Right? And I'm not saying we don't have any boundaries in our life, but we can always treat people with honor. Let's move on here. Sometimes we can grow lazy and believe that others don't care how we treat them. I don't care how they treat them. It's just Billy Bob on the, side, on the second row. He doesn't care how anybody treats him. Listen, people care. And you can become lazy in your ability to honor people when you begin to assume that the way you treat them has no value also. We can believe the lie that honor, honoring people puts you in a weak position. Well, people will just take advantage of me. Let me tell you a little secret. Yes, they will. They will. But the Lord is your defense, not yourself. When you love people and they take advantage of you, that's when you go to the Father and say, Lord, look what's happening. And he's your defense. Not you go out and blast it all over Facebook trying to build a team to avenge your conscience, right? The Lord's our defense. Okay, move on with me. It takes greater courage to honor people any coward can dishonor. It takes great courage to honor people any coward. And I'm not saying that to call names, but it's the cowardice behavior to treat people dishonorably. Look at this passage here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Are you still with me? Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a tremendous controversial statement Jesus makes in the time that he makes it. Because up until that day, the Jews, the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees had taught, love those who love you, hate those that hate you. You remember that little passage? God says to Abraham in Genesis, he says, I will bless them that bless you and curse those who curse you. This for that. But Jesus comes along and said, you've heard that said before, but I'm telling you a better way. He says what? You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. That's hard. And the reason it's hard is because you can't do it in your ability. You have to have the love of the Father inside of you. It's not just muster up all the courage you can to be nice. It's God, give me the grace to show them who you are. Love your enemies and bless. That word bless literally means to invoke or enact divine favor, often implying a positive disposition or kind actions toward a recipient. That's asking God to help you be nice and honor. That's how we do this whole thing of following Jesus. We ask the Holy Spirit who is in us to empower us to do what he's told us to do. He says what? You do this because... You are sons of your Father in heaven. And that word, that, that word picture is this. As a son of God, as a daughter of God, because this is God's nature, it's in your nature as well. And you have to let that nature come out of you. So he says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And as he's saying this, back to when I was telling you about James earlier, James, the son of Zebedee. So Jesus had these three disciples who were like his tight-knit his close crew, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. What you may not have known is James and John are cousins to Jesus. They're related, obviously, through Mary. Mary had a, a sister named Salome, I believe, and Salome's sons were James and John. And so this is a tight little crew. Andrew and Peter were also related to Jesus through Mary as well. But James and John... When they are in the Samaritan village, and you remember that story, some of you have watching The Chosen, it kind of makes a great depiction of this, this moment when they're out in the Samaritan village and, and the Samaritans throw rocks at them and, and tell them to get out of there because they're Jews. And James and John are like, let's strike them all with thunder, you know, kill them all. And Jesus gets onto them and then he turns around and kind of spins a joke and he calls them the sons of thunder, right? It's an insult and a joke because that name stuck with them after that, right? James and John, they were so passionate about defending Jesus that they forgot the purpose of why he was there. Let me tell you, it's a free little nugget here. When you take on other people's offenses, you forget the reason why you're here. When you get offended because they got hurt, then you're missing the point of what God's telling you to do in loving people well. When you hate people that hate other people, you're on the hating side. You're not fixing any problems. And listen, we're in a culture where people pride themselves in being offended on behalf of somebody else, sometimes people they've never met. You know what that's called? Foolishness. A waste of time and energy. Being offended on behalf of other people. Well, you know what brother so-and-so said to sister so-and-so? I can't believe he said that. Now, you're offended at that person. You weren't even in the conversation. You weren't a part of the answer. You're not part of the solution. But now you're offended. And what happens is it creates disunity in the church. And now Holy Spirit can't come in. Listen, 
When people hurt you, the response is love those who persecute you. In fact, Jesus would go on to say, pray for them who despitefully use you. And he's not just talking people in the world here in the church. Pray for them. So you may be what? The sons of your father in heaven. Read on here. When I was talking about James, there's a funny, not funny, it's an incredible story at the end of James's life. James, he's called James the Greater, and there's been other James. There's three Jameses in the Bible. There's James the Greater, James the Lesser. How would you like that title? James the Lesser. And then there's James, the son, the, the brother of Jesus, right? So Jesus had two brothers that we know of, Jude and James. So James, the son of Zebedee, at the end of his life, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's the pillar. He's one of the anchor disciples in the church in Jerusalem. And when King Herod, Herod Agrippa, comes to power as, as the fir- in the first century after Jesus dies, rises again, persecution begins, Herod comes to James and captures him, and he goes to behead him. And for a number of days, James is captured. Let me read it here, the, the narrative from Fox's Book of Martyrs. He says, James, the elder brother of John and the relative of our Lord, um, for his mother Salome was cousins to Mary, it was not until 10 years after the death of Stephen that the second martyrdom took place. For no sooner had Herod Agrippa been appointed governor of Judea that with a view to ingrate himself with them, he raised up sharp persecution against the Christians and determined that to make an effectual blow by striking at their leaders. The account was given to us by an eminent primitive writer, Clemens of Alexandrinus, should not be overlooked, that as James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostle's extraordinary courage and undauntedness. He fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself as a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup, which he had told the Savior that he was ready to drink. You remember when Jesus, they said to him, Lord, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. You remember that part? Actually, it was James's mom, Mrs. Zebedee, that went to Jesus and said, hey, John, this is a fun story. She comes up to Jesus, like any good mom, and says, I'm going to ask you something, and I need you to say yes. And Jesus is like, uh, okay. Because remember the last time mama asked him something? It was water into wine situation. And Jesus says, okay, what? And she says, granted that my two sons, James and John, will sit at your right hand and on your left hand when you enter into the kingdom. They're still thinking Jesus is going to take over the world. And Jesus says to them, to sit at my right and left hand, it's not in my power to do. Are they able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink, speaking of the suffering that he will take on? And the brothers step up, we're able. You have no idea what you're asking. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he says, James, drink that cup. He laid down his life, honored his persecutors to the degree that the soldier that's taking to get beheaded is so moved with his devotion to love and honor that when James is beheaded, he puts his head on the line as well and is beheaded with him. In the scope of eternity, it's not a loss. Even in his death, James brings another into the kingdom. Some of us were so intent on self-preservation, we're forgetting our purpose is not self-preservation. It's to bring people into the kingdom, an eternal kingdom. How do we honor people? You still with me? Number one, honoring is a choice. Honoring people is a choice you make. 
Although, we honor other, although honoring others is a choice, God gives us grace when we obey his commands to honor. First way to honor, honoring people in your thoughts. I know you've never done this, but somebody does something to you and you just cycle it over and over in your head. I can't believe they did that. You know, it's like that. And you're talking to yourself. And sometimes y'all mumble it out and we think you're crazy, but you're cycling. And you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about it. You're walking through Walmart, and you're thinking about it. You're, you're online, you're thinking about it. You see somebody that wore the shirt they wore, and then you start thinking about it. And you know what you're doing? It's called dishonor. It's dishonoring. And eventually, that little foothold will lead to anger, strife, confusion, and wicked works. You have to tell yourself, stop thinking about this. Forgive. Let go. How do we honor people first? In our thoughts. We have to stop the cycle of condemning and judging. Now listen, judgment is not a bad thing, but you're not the judge when it comes to relationships. You have to trust them to the Lord. When they hurt you, your response is not to judge and condemn and cyclically think evil thoughts. Your job is to forgive and entrust them to the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 of 4. He says, Paul writing, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but with lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. Now, wait a minute. Think about this. Let each one esteem others better than himself. That takes some very intentional thoughts. I'm going to believe they're better than me. Even though the behavior many times may tell you otherwise, and you want to believe they're the worst person in the world. He says, what? Esteem others better than yourself. That takes the grace of God. Esteem others better than yourself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. You know, when you serve other people and you esteem them better than yourself, you're opening a huge doorway for them to see the love of God come out of your life. Especially if there's been tension in the past. Esteem others better than yourself. Forgive often to release yourself from the trap of condemning thoughts toward others. If there's one lesson every church has to be reminded of every week is we're in the forgiving business. When you reach a place when you're not forgiving people, you're hardening your heart. Forgiveness is the essence of the Christian faith. This is what we do. People hurt us, we forgive. People say bad things about us, we forgive. People take advantage of you, you forgive. That's the essence of the Christian message. And we forgive, not half-heartedly, well, I just got to forgive you. You ever hear those prayers? Lord, just forgive them, I forgive them, but God, will you just kick them in the tail a little bit? That's not forgiveness. We want God to be the, the, the ax man, you know, for our vendetta. No. God's goal is not to kill people, it's to save them. When we forgive, it gives honor to the people who have hurt us. Honor people first with your thoughts. And it all starts right here in your thinking. And as you honor people in your thoughts, and many times it means stop thinking negatively about them. The second thing is honoring people with your words. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says, Remind them, Paul writing to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Everybody should put that on your profile page of Facebook. To speak evil of no one. 
in the Greek, you know what that means? To speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. How do we honor people? The way we think about them. What we say about them. Sometimes it starts off, well, brother, I need you to pray for sister so-and-so, and then out it comes. Listen, speak evil of no man. Because when we guard our mouth, we make a resting place for the Holy Spirit to come. Speak evil of no one. Choose sometimes to be silent when the opportunity to slander and mock and gossip arises. You can say a lot by saying nothing when the conversation turns in the wrong direction. Now, I'll just give you a little tip. If you come to me with a complaint about somebody, I'm going to tell you what my response is. Have you talked to them yet? And if you haven't, why are you talking to me? That's just the way it is. If you got to complain about somebody, go talk to them and work it out with them. Don't go vent your feelings and blow up on them. Go work it out with them. And if you haven't done that first, don't go to anybody else because then it's gossip. Then it's slander. I remember the first time, I know none of y'all have done this. Somebody came to me, well, you know, Pastor Lloyd this. I said, did you talk to him? No. Then why are we talking? Listen, that's how the enemy gets in. That's how he gets in. So you have an offense against a pastor, and then you talk to sister so-and-so. Now she has an offense on your behalf. Nothing happened to her, but now she's offended with you, with the, with the pastor, because you're offended with the pastor. Do you know what he said? Blah, blah, blah. They weren't in the conversation. They have no part of it. And then it goes to person number three. And then all of a sudden, you're building a team of people that agree with you against the leadership that God has put in your life. You know what that's called? Witchcraft. The Bible says rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. It's when you start building a little team to dishonor the authority that God's put in your life or the word that God's spoken to you. You put together a team, well, you know, them, this person. And it's not just the pastor, it's people in the church. Brother, sister, so-and-so, brother, so-and-so, do you know what he did to me? And then you start building this little team with you that are vindicating your offense. You know what that's called? Witchcraft. And the Holy Spirit cannot abide when that stuff starts stirring up. <laughs> Thank you, Mac. <laughs> Don't repeat or perpetuate the mistakes of others. And listen, I'm preaching to myself here, Mac. Sometimes I fall into the trap too. But don't repeat other people's mistakes. Well, you know, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, I heard this about them. No. You're giving room to the enemy. Don't perpetuate, even if it's a true story, you bringing it to light over and over and over doesn't bring about unity in the body. It brings about what? Division and strife. The last thing, we honor people with our time and our abilities. And this is where generosity is so important. When we honor people with our time and abilities, it's not just lip service anymore. We go and help them. We go and be a part of their life. They need a tree cut down after a storm. You go and help. They need help financially. You give and you be a part of their life, helping them through their difficulties. Everybody can, with lip service, portray honor. But sometimes it means going the other mile and doing something to honor people, even when they don't agree with you especially when they don't agree with you. Show them the love of the Father by honoring them in how you do it and how you serve them. Find ways to honor those who have tangible needs. Serve without the ulterior motives. Well, once I do this for them, then they're going to really repent. No. You're honoring because you serve a God of honor, not because you want vindication. 
honor opens the door for others to see Jesus. Honor opens the door for others to see Jesus. Now I'm going to wrap up. Oh, it's 1140. We're doing great. Let me tell you, I've been in the church long enough, served long enough as pastors, youth pastor, children's pastor, whatever. And I'm going to tell you, in every church I've ever been in, set foot in, whether it was just to be a guest speaker or whatever, every church, there's always been a history by which people are offended. Things have happened that everybody can get offended about. Leaders have done this. Leaders have done that. And I'm not saying what they've done is right. I'm not saying it's permissible. I'm not saying it's okay. But I'm saying things happen and feelings get hurt. Lives are hurt. Families are broken. Relationships are destroyed. And I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, I want to just tell you, I'm sorry. It should have not happened. And I'm apologizing on behalf of pastors that you had hurt your life. I'm sorry. And I'm not saying that just flippantly. I'm really sorry. There's things that have happened in churches that you've been in that should have never happened. And if you'll allow me to repent on behalf of those men or women of God, I'm telling you, I'm sorry your family was hurt. I'm sorry things weren't given that were promised. Things were said that were not true. And I'm repenting on behalf of pastors. You know why? Because that's the only way out of this hurt. They need, I need your forgiveness. That's the only way out of this. Wishing the judgment of God on people who've hurt you doesn't make you feel any better. In fact, many times when we see judgment fall, compassion comes in because that's the nature of the Father. So much can happen in our lives, and the enemy's working to compress all the hurt, pain that you've experienced in church, to pull you to a place of isolation where you don't trust anyone. And the kingdom of God that's within you stays dormant. If we want the Holy Spirit to come, we have to open those floodgates and allow the healing waters of the Holy Spirit to come and say, Father, I'm going to choose to honor instead of how I feel, in spite of how I feel. Grace, if you can help me out real quick. A number of... Uh, a number of months ago, I was reading a book and a, by a guy named Richard, Richard Wormbrand. Some of y'all might know his story. He wrote it a number of years ago, uh, decades ago, a story called Torture for Christ. And I've, I've had the story printed out, but it's kind of lengthy, so I'm just going to tell you a brief version of this. Richard, in World War II, as the Germans came into Romania, and Romania was on the German side, the Germans came into Romania and all the Jews got deported out of various parts of Romania. Richard was in Bucharest, and that was one of the cities that was not touched. Richard's wife, Sabina, was a Jew. And she, uh, very devout, raised in, in a Jewish family, and uh, her family lived in the city next to Bucharest, I believe. And uh, they were all captured. Three sisters and a brother, mom and dad, were all captured. And they were deported to a place called Trans Transminstra, I believe. It was a death camp. And as they were deported to that area, um, over a period of time, she later found out that they all had been killed. And the story happens that Richard tells where he's there in a, in a flat 
apartment complex in Bucharest, and the landlord is a believer because Richard has witnessed everybody he can, brought as many people to the Lord as he can. And the landlord of the house that they're in has a visitor friend who was a buddy of his back in the high school days, but he's a German, and then he went into the German Nazi training and became a soldier. And that day he'd come to visit them, and Richard's landlord slash friend, fellow believer, tells him, hey, I have this German soldier staying with us. Why don't you come see him? He's an old friend of mine. And on the way to the apartment, the landlord tells Richard, but he's changed. He's a different person now than he was before. He's a good friend, but now he's just really changed. And um, as they're going to the, the apartment, they sit down, and it's a huge guy. And his name is, in German, Borila, B-O-R-L-I-A, Borla. And he's sitting there, and they're drinking a little bit of whatever they drink, vodka or wine. And Borla is strewn out on this huge lounge chair. He's a tall man. And he's bragging about all the people that he's killed, Jews that he's slaughtered. In this one area uh, that where Sabina's family was taken, over 8 million Jews have been killed, and her family being one of those. And Borla is bragging and telling the story of how violent and, and, you know, just aggressive he's been and kind of the wine is kicking in and he's kind of bragging and bragging and bragging. And Richard, of course, getting angrier and angrier and angrier, knowing that this is the man that possibly killed his in-laws. And so they get to talking about other things and this, this guy, Borla, talks about how he loved Ukrainian music and you know, he had a thing for the arts and things like that. And then Richard has an idea. He says, why don't you come with me to my apartment? I have a piano and I know some of those songs. And I'll play them for you. Has no clue what he's doing yet. So Borea, his landlord, and they go up to Richard's apartment. And he sits down and it's early in the morning. It's like midnight, past midnight. And they're playing softly and he's enjoying it. And then all of a sudden Borea starts crying because just the music starts touching him and it's moving him. And it's an old folk song. It's nothing spiritual. And then Richard stops playing the piano. He turns at his chair and he looks at them. And he says, I need to tell you something. Borla looks at him, enjoying the music, enjoying the, the evening, and says, okay. And Richard says, if you look through that doorway, there's a curtain there. He says, my wife is in there asleep. Her name is Sabina. Her mother and father four siblings were taken to Transnistria and you probably killed them more than likely well the guy starts getting angry his face turns flush red because he thinks that they're about to have a fight and Richard says to him I'm going to tell you a little I'm going to give you he says an experiment I'm going to give an experiment he says I'm going to go in that room and I'm going to tell my wife Wake her up from her sleep, dangerous thing to do. Wake her up from her sleep and tell her that the soldier who killed her mother and father and siblings is in our living room. And he says, I'm gonna tell you what she's gonna do. She's gonna get out of that bed. She's gonna get herself ready. She's gonna come in here, put her arms around you and hug you. And then she'll go into that kitchen and she'll make you a meal. Borla's stunned. What in the world? And he says, because inside of her, she was once a sinner. But she met Jesus. And he has put in her an ability to love. 
honor brings. The moment Boyla falls to the ground, weeping uncontrollably, asking God's forgiveness for the butcher that he had become. Richard stands up, puts his hand over him, and commands the spirit of murder and violence out of him. The presence of God falls on him, and he's saved. Richard gets up and says, I made you a promise. He goes into that room, wakes up his wife. He says, I have something to tell you, Sabina. The man who murdered your brother, sister, mom and dad, is in the living room, and he just gave his life to Jesus. Sabina gets up, as predicted, dresses herself up a little bit, comes into the living room, walks up to Voria, and I'm going to read it to there, read you this end part so I don't mess it up. It says, Richard says, I went into the room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at that time. I woke her gently and said, there's a man here you must meet. We believe he has murdered your family, but he has repented and he's now a brother. She came out in her dressing room gown and put out her arms to embrace him. And they both begin to weep and hold each other again and again. And I've never seen, Richard says, a bride and a bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. Then as I foretold, Sabina went into the kitchen and prepared him a meal. That's what this is about. The gospel of Jesus is not a take things by force message. It is a change lives by the power and the love of the Father. And this morning, I believe the Lord's brought this truth to us because maybe we've been looking at our enemies through a lens of hostility, People even here in the church that you've looked at the lens, through the lens of hostility at them because of pains they've inflicted, misunderstandings, miscommunication. And we keep crying out, God, we want you to move in orange. We want you to move in our church. We want you to move in our community. And it's not happening, not because God is holding back, but because we haven't given him a place to rest. And that place of rest is in our relationships, how we treat each other. Are we honoring? Are we allowing the roots of offense to perpetuate constant strife, confusion, and tension in our life? Some of you this morning, listen, the Lord's been speaking. The name of that person keeps going in your head. The, their image of their face, you need to forgive. You need to begin to honor with your mouth, with your thoughts, with your behavior. And I believe the Lord wants to shift us as a church to be a people who know how to honor in the face of a dishonorable culture. Not because we're better, but because we've been called to be the servants of all. Stand with me just for a moment. If I can just have the prayer team to go ahead and come up. Here's how we're going to close, I believe. Listen, I'm not saying the pain that you've endured as a church, as an individual, as a family is not relevant, that it's not tangible, that it doesn't hurt. In the midst of that, though, in the midst of the struggles of your life, listen, some of you, it's deep in your family. It's a divorce. 
stepchildren. It's your children, grandchildren. The enemy has come in and inflicted wounds of bitterness, unforgiveness, and you've acted dishonorably. You've acted without honor, spoken without honor, had thoughts cycling through your mind over and over that don't honor them. And today the Lord is saying to you, listen, my way is better. My road is easier. The burden that I have, it's light. Come to me. You're heavy laden with this. I want to give you rest this morning. If that's you this morning and you need to get this off of your heart, you don't have to give us names. You don't have to perpetuate anymore. You say, I need to give this to the Lord. And I need the power of the Holy Spirit to help me walk in honor towards some people that have hurt me. Maybe those people are here in this church right now, sitting on the other side of the church because you're as far as you can get from them. Maybe you need to go say, I haven't treated you with honor. Forgive me. They don't need to know all the excuses you have for it. I haven't treated you with honor. And I need you to forgive me. If that's you this morning, I want you to make your way to the front or make your way to the person you need to talk to as we pray. Lord, I come before you this morning. And Lord, I thank you that the, the sweetness, the grace of your presence draws us to repentance. And this morning, we come before you as a church saying, Father, lead us in this path of righteousness. Lead us to honor, forgive, and move into healing waters. Lord, we ask for your faithfulness to permeate, come through us by showing us how to love, how to care, how to show honor. And even this morning, Lord, wounds that have been dealt to us will be healed as we confess our faults one to another. Wounds will be healed and relationships begin the journey of restoration as we lay this before you this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. If that's you this morning, why don't you come to the front? We want to pray with you as the worship team is going to go back. Just sing a quick song. Everyone else, just stay, remain with me for just a moment and begin to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, is there somebody I need to forgive? Is there someone I've held an offense toward? And the Lord will bring it to your mind. Hey, you need to forgive. You need to honor.
church that honors one another, regardless of the situations we've walked through together, regardless of the conflicts, regardless of the tension, Father, that we honor so we can express your kindness, your compassion, your healing work through our lives to those who have worked against us, behaved against us. Lord, I pray that your presence would continue this work in the days to come. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father, to speak this morning. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. We love you this morning, and if you still need prayer, the prayer leaders are still going to be here. Pray for anything, anything that you need. You need healing, sickness, whatever it is, just some encouragement. Prayer warriors are going to be up here for a little bit. Just come pray with them. Other than that, we'll see you back here. Tuesday morning we have prayer. Thursday morning prayer. And Wednesday night we'll be in service here. All right? for listening to today's episode. If you would like to learn more about Community Church, you can visit our website at ccorange.org or come follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash community orange. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time.